Chapter 17, The Justice of God Our Father, we love thee for thy justice. We acknowledge that thy judgments are true and righteous altogether. Thy justice upholds the order of the universe and guarantees the safety of all who put their trust in thee. We live because thou art just and merciful. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, righteous in all thy ways and holy in all thy works. Amen. In the inspired scriptures, justice and righteousness are scarcely to be distinguished from each other. The same word in the original becomes in English, justice or righteousness, almost one would suspect, at the whim of the translator. The Old Testament asserts God's justice in language clear and full, and as beautiful as may be found anywhere in the literature of mankind. When the destruction of Sodom was announced, Abraham interceded for the righteous within the city, reminding God that he knew he would act like himself in the human emergency. That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The concept of God held by the psalmists and prophets of Israel was that of an all-powerful ruler, high and lifted up, reigning in equity. Clouds and darkness are round about him, righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. Of the long-awaited Messiah, it was prophesied that when he came, he should judge the people with righteousness and the poor with judgment. Holy men of tender compassion, outraged by the iniquity of the world's rulers, prayed, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself, lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth, render reward to the proud, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? And this is to be understood not as a plea for personal vengeance, but as a longing to see moral equity prevail in human society. Such men as David and Daniel acknowledged that their own unrighteousness, in contrast to the righteousness of God, and as a result their penitential prayers gained great power and effectiveness, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. And when the long-withheld judgment of God begins to fall upon the world, John sees the victorious saints standing upon a sea of glass mingled with fire. In their hands they hold harps of God. The song they sing is the song of Moses and the Lamb, and the theme of their song is the divine justice. Great and marvellous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Justice embodies the idea of moral equity. And iniquity is the exact opposite. It is inequity, the absence of equality from human thoughts and acts. Judgment is the application of equity to moral situations. 
and may be favourable or unfavourable according to whether the one under examination has been equitable or inequitable in heart and conduct. It is sometimes said, justice requires God to do this, referring to some act we know he will perform. This is an error of thinking as well as of speaking, for it postulates a principle of justice outside of God, which compels him to act in a certain way. Of course, there is no such principle. If there were, it would be superior to God, for only a superior power compel obedience. The truth is that there is not and can never be anything outside of the nature of God which can move him in the least degree. All God's reasons come from within his uncreated being. Nothing has entered the being of God from eternity. Nothing has been removed and nothing has been changed. Justice, when used of God, is a name we give to the way God is, nothing more. And when God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. As gold is an element in itself and can never change nor compromise, but is gold wherever it is found, so God is God, always, only, fully God, and can never be other than he is. Everything in the universe is good to the degree it conforms to the nature of God, and evil as it fails to do so. God is his own self-existent principle of moral equity, And when he sentences evil men or rewards the righteous, he simply acts like himself from within, uninfluenced by anything that is not himself. All this seems, but only seems, to destroy the hope of justification for the returning sinner. The Christian philosopher and saint Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, sought a solution to the apparent contradiction between the justice and the mercy of God. How dost thou spare the wicked? He inquired of God, if thou art all just and supremely just. Then he looked straight at God for the answer, for he knew that it lies in what God is. Anselm's findings may be paraphrased this way. God's being is unitary. It is not composed of a number of parts working harmoniously, but simply one. There is nothing in his justice which forbids the exercise of his mercy. To think of God as we sometimes think of a court while a kindly judge, compelled by law, sentences a man to death with tears and apologies, is to think in a manner wholly unworthy of the true God. God is never at cross-purposes with himself. No attribute of God is in conflict with another. God's compassion flows out of his goodness, and goodness without justice is not goodness. God spares us because he is good but he could not be good if he were not just. When God punishes the wicked, Anselm concludes, it is just because it is consistent with their deserts. And when he spares the wicked, it is just because it is compatible with his goodness. So God does what becomes him as a supremely good God. This is reason seeking to understand, not that it may believe, but because it already believes. A simpler and more familiar solution for the problem of how God can be just and still justify the unjust is found in the Christian doctrine of redemption. It is that through the work of Christ in atonement, justice is not violated but satisfied when God spares a sinner. Redemptive theology teaches that mercy does not become effective toward a man until justice has done its work. 
The just penalty for sin was exacted when Christ our substitute died for us on the cross. However unpleasant this may sound to the ear of the natural man, it has ever been sweet to the ear of faith. Millions have been morally and spiritually transformed by this message, have lived lives of great moral power and died at last peacefully trusting in it. This message of justice discharged and mercy operative is more than a pleasant theological theory. It announces a fact made necessary by our deep human need. Because of our sin, we are all under sentence of death, a judgment which resulted when justice confronted our moral situation. When infinite equity encountered our chronic and willfully inequity, there was violent war between the two, a war which God won and must always win. But when the penitent sinner casts himself upon Christ for salvation, the moral situation is reversed. Justice confronts the changed situation and pronounces the believing man just. Thus, justice actually goes over to the side of God's trusting children. This is the meaning of those daring words of the Apostle John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But God's justice stands forever against a sinner in utter severity. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unregarded. As responsible moral beings, we dare not so trifle with our eternal future. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty arm, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Count N.L. von Zindensorf. Chapter 18. The Mercy of God. Holy Father, thy wisdom excites our admiration. Thy power fills us with fear. Thy omnipresence turns every spot of earth into holy ground. But how shall we thank thee enough for thy mercy, which comes down to the lowest part of our need, to give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and for the spirit of heaviness a garment of praise. We bless and magnify thy mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When through the blood of the everlasting covenant we children of the shadows reach at last our home in the light, we shall have a thousand strings to our harps, but the sweetest may well be the one tune to sound forth most perfectly, the mercy of God. For what right will we have to be there? Did we not by our sins take part in that unholy rebellion which rashly sought to dethrone the glorious king of creation? And did we not in times past walk according to the counsel of this world, according to the evil prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience? And did we not all at once live in the lusts of our flesh? And were we not by nature the children of wrath, even as others? But we who were one time enemies and alienated in our minds through wicked works shall then see God face to face, and his name shall be in our foreheads. We who earned banishment shall enjoy communion. We who deserve the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven. And all through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Joseph Addison says, When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view, I'm lost in wonder, love and praise. Mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature which disposes God to be actively compassionate. Both the Old and the New Testaments proclaim the mercy of God, but the Old has more than four times as much to say about it as the New. We should banish from our minds forever the common but erroneous notion that justice and judgment characterise the God of Israel, while mercy and grace belong to the Lord of the Church. Actually, there is in principle no difference between the Old Testament and the New. In the New Testament scriptures, there is a fuller development of redemptive truth, but one God speaks in both dispensations, and what he speaks agrees with what he is. Wherever and whenever God appears to men, he acts like himself. Whether in the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Gethsemane, God is merciful as well as just. He has always dealt in mercy with mankind and will always deal in justice when his mercy is despised. Thus he did in antediluvian times, thus when Christ walked among men, thus he is doing today and will continue always to do for no other reason than that he is God. If we could remember that the divine mercy is not a temporary mood, but an attribute of God's eternal being, we would no longer fear that it will someday cease to be. Mercy never began to be, but from eternity was, so it will never cease to be. It will never be more since it is in itself infinite, and it will never be less because the infinite cannot suffer diminution. Nothing that has occurred or will occur in heaven or on earth or hell can change the tender mercies of our God. Forever his mercy stands, a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. As judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity, so mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. Were there no guilt in the world, no pain and no tears, God would yet be infinitely merciful. But his mercy might well remain hidden in his heart, unknown to the created universe. No voice would be raised to celebrate the mercy of which none felt the need. It is human misery and sin that call forth the divine mercy. Kyrie Elysion, Christi Elysion, the church has pleaded through the centuries. But if I mistake not, I hear in the voice of her pleading a note of sadness and despair, her plaintive cry, so often repeated in that tone of resigned dejection, compels one to infer that she is praying for a boon she never actually expects to receive. She may go on dutifully to sing of the greatness of God and to recite the creed times beyond number, 
But her plea for mercy sounds like a forlorn hope and no more, as if mercy were a heavenly gift to be longed for but never really enjoyed. Could our failure to capture the pure joy of mercy consciously experienced be the result of our unbelief or our ignorance or both? It was so once in Israel. I bear them record, Paul testified of Israel, that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. They failed because there was at least one thing they did not know, one thing that would have made the difference. And of Israel in the wilderness, the Hebrew writer says, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. To receive mercy, we must first know that God is merciful. And it is not enough to believe that he once showed mercy to Noah or Abraham or David and will again show mercy in some happy future day. We must believe that God's mercy is boundless, free and through Jesus Christ, our Lord, available to us now in our present situation. We may plead for mercy for a lifetime in unbelief and at the end of our days be still no more than sadly hopeful that we shall somewhere, sometime receive it. This is to starve to death just outside the banquet hall in which we have been warmly invited. Or we may, if we will, lay hold on the mercy of God by faith, enter the hall and sit down with the bold and avid souls who will not allow diffidence and unbelief to keep them from the feast of fat things prepared for them. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father... Abba, Father, cry. Charles Wesley.